All right, a couple of quick announcements. <clears throat> the first one is um, just kind of the, the mask situation. Um, and especially if you haven't been here in a while, you're like, what's up with the mask? Where are we at? Um, there are three different sections. One over here is you don't have to wear a mask at any time. The balconies all mask all the time. And uh, down here is we just ask that when you're out and about uh, walking around, if you wouldn't mind wearing a mask. But if you're comfortable when you're seated and you don't want to wear a mask, you can take a mask off. If you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. Whatever. It's up to you. <clears throat> okay? Um, secondly, over the past number of weeks, we've been talking about what it means to be spiritual family, and we're continuing talking about that here this morning, and trying to lay a foundation of God's heart for us to be part of his family. What does that mean? What does that look like? Um, you, uh, for you, you're thinking, okay, I want to be part of spiritual family, but how do I do that? Your next step is we're going to have two options for an orientation on what, just looking more deeply at what does it mean to be spiritual family, and that'll be here at Moran Park on Sunday, April 11th, that's the one after Easter, at 6 o'clock, or the 28th at 6 o'clock here as well. So as we get closer to those, more details to come. But it's just to help you talk more. There's a lot of different ways to be spiritual family. We just want to talk with you maybe what that might look like for you in being spiritual family. So if you're thinking, I, I want to do this, I think maybe uh, this is a great opportunity for you to come to process that more and hear more about what that means. Cool? All right. Questions? Good jokes? Anything? All right. So this morning, this, this all week, what's been on my heart is just this idea. We talk about spiritual family, and it, I'm like, man, if we're not careful, we just get into the same trappings of like, okay, I, I've got to try to do all this stuff for the Lord. I've got to do all these things. Like, you're laying out all this stuff to do for God as part of the family, and it becomes really overwhelming. And so it's on my heart. It's the Lord just drawing us back to this idea. The beauty of being part of God's family is that we get to, we get to know the Father. And as I was processing that this week, um, one of my buddies, Michael, who you, a lot of you probably know, Michael Brooks, he's been around for a long time at Moran, and he's like led worship. He, he does everything. And he's a, he's, my, he's a friend of mine, and he's one of the people that has taught me so much about this idea of being sons and daughters of God. And what, is, what does it mean that God's our Father and knowing the Father? And it's funny, for years, you know, I'm like, Michael, we got to press in and make disciples and be the church. And Michael would always say to me, he's like, yeah, 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 that's true, but like, like, how do we really love people well? How do we, like, be family together? I'm like, yeah, 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 be family. Okay, fine, fine. But how do we go do this? And he's like, yeah, Britton, that's good, but how do we really be family? People be received in the family. Like, yeah, I know you said that. I'm like, okay, great, let's go. It always, and, like, finally, I think this past year, I'm like, oh, oh, I get what you've been saying for 10 years to me. And so I called him this week, and I'm like, okay, Michael, all right, talk to me, man. Like, I got this question I've heard you teach on this so many times. I've heard you share this from your heart so many times about being sons and daughters and God is our father and that relationship and what comes out of that relationship. And I'm on the phone with him, and he's just like, like spitting so much truth to me. And he's just sharing so much. And as he's talking, I'm going, why in the world would I share this? Why wouldn't you just share this? And now Michael's been around. We've been friends for a long time, so he's totally used to me throwing him under the bus. So this is like Thursday. So I'm like, dude, what about you teaching on Sunday? Which for him is a gift because usually it would be like a Sunday morning. I'm like, bro, I think you should do this instead of me. And I'm like, I've given you like four days or three days to, to pray about this. So Michael was praying about it this week, and I just feel like Michael had the word to share to us today to encourage us. And so um, I just want to say hey to Michael. Michael, come on up and share what God's put on your heart. Good morning, everyone. Thanks, bro. Thank you. Good, man. Love you, buddy. 
Yes, much, much bus throwing over the years. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Britain has been talking extensively uh, over the last couple weeks about what does it mean to be um, spiritual family together. I come from an Italian family, so I'm like, are you sure you know what you're getting into with this? Like, results may vary, like I've seen a lot of things, right? Um, <laughs> but yeah, in all seriousness, fam, there, there's a huge call on our lives to model what it means to be family uh, for a world that is so desperately seeking unity and doing so in the wrong ways um, and not able to have unity apart, uh, not able to have unity because they're united under sin which can only divide. Um, and we have the opportunity to show the world what it means to be family as people who have the Holy Spirit. Um, and so there is like a huge call on our, our lives to model what it means to be family, but we know that's super hard to do because uh, it, re- it involves laying our lives down um, for one another. And I don't want to like underemphasize that, uh, but I think as Britton and I have been kicking ideas around, um, we're in house church together, so sometimes he'll just kind of unload everything he's thinking for the week on me, and I'll, I'll just like process it and think about it and ask, ask some questions. But um, as Britton has been processing this, like he's taken a step back, as he said, and, and realized that, hey, um, we have to know the Father first. And I think that's the core message I have for you guys today, is that if we don't know the Father as individuals, we can't hope to love one another as family. I'll say that one more time. If we don't know the Father as individuals, we can't hope to love one another as family. Um, and so what does it mean to know the Father? We need to take a step back and ask that question and ask what are the barriers to us knowing the Father? Um, the greatest conversion that a person can make in this lifetime is the declaration of Jesus as Lord. Uh, is giving your allegiance over to King Jesus to laying down your life to serve him. Uh, but I've jokingly heard it said that the second greatest conversion a person can make is uh, receiving God as Father. Uh, and this is ironic, right? John eight twenty nine, uh, Jesus says, if you knew me, you would know the Father. Right, so the implication is, if we knew Jesus, we would know the Father. Um, but there still seems to be some disconnect for us in knowing the Father. And uh, I think this has a lot to do with the age we're living in. I think this has a lot to do with the familial brokenness that a lot of us have experienced. Um, uh, a lot of the brokenness in um, being fathered growing up, as well as the brokenness we see in our communities, the brokenness we see uh, in our societies and, and family all around us, um, the brokenness in our media, it's, it's all around. And um, today I want to explore some of those things and some of those narratives to ask the question, like, what is stopping us from knowing um, God as Father? Um, I am 30 years old and do not have this figured out. Uh, so please know that. I know I look younger. I have the Britain Smith anointing on my life. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, I didn't realize this until, until later in my life. Um, I gave my life to Jesus as an adolescent, um, and I started to know different aspects of God. Uh, sometimes I think the point of life is to just know different aspects of God as you age. Um, As a young teenager, I I came to know God as Savior. I came to know what it meant for him to save me from my sins. Um, As I was an older teenager and in college, I understood uh, what it meant for Jesus to be Lord. Um, In college, I started to follow the Holy Spirit. I started to hear God's voice, but I didn't know him as a father yet. 
Uh, and that was something that would change my life after college. Um, I went to school here in Holland, Michigan, and uh, as I approached graduation, I asked, Lord, what do you want me to do with the rest of my life? Like, I'll go be a missionary, um, you know, I'll go in dangerous countries, uh, I'll go to grad school, or less preferable, I'll, I'll get a nine to five if you want, like, you know, put me in the, put me in like Waziristan or something cool, but please not the nine to five, right? Um, but he, he said something to me, he said, hey, come meet me in the wilderness. And I said, I'm, I'm a suburban white kid, like I'm going to die in 10 minutes, are you kidding? Um, <laughs> he said, uh, no, he was pretty clear uh, over and over, like, come meet me in the wilderness. And so um, through like three different divine appointments, I partnered with an organization called Solid Rock Outdoor Ministries. Uh, right out of college, I was 22, uh, and they take people on 40-day wilderness trips through the Wind River Range Mountains. Um, it's Category 2 grizzly bear territory. I had hypothermia, exertional hyponatremia, multiple forms of altitude sickness. It's charged by a moose. All the fun things you can think of <laughs> happened on this trip. Um, but uh, something even better happened. And, and I had gone out there as uh, a very idealistic 22-year-old, believing that God would give me the calling for the rest of my life, that the angel with the scroll would appear somewhere in the mountains and be like, here is thy calling, Michael. Um, and God did not do that. He did something much better. Uh, because the worst thing he can do is put a person in his or her calling if that person doesn't know who he or she is yet. Right? And that person hasn't been tested because then that person brings the whole ship down with them. Right? And so God on that trip, he tested me and he gave me my identity. Um, and this is where I came to know him as father. I had a really powerful encounter with him about 20 days through this trip where he revealed to me uh, himself, not as a savior, not as a lord, he was all of those things, but for the first time, he revealed himself to me uh, as a, a loving father who accepted me and um, who wanted something to do with me. And so um, I think my conception of God as, as father and why that felt distant um, came from an interesting reading of scripture. Uh, if you want to toss that first slide up there. Uh, I grew up with the 1984 NIV version, which uh, said in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believed in him, right, should not perish, but have eternal life. I heard that verse a lot growing up. Grew up in an E-free church. The goal was to pass go and collect eternal life, right? It wasn't, um, <laughs> you know, there's like not a lot of discipleship or uh, just really focused on, on praying the sinner's prayer, right? Um, but this verse got me because I was like, all right, there's one, God has one and only son. And the rest of us are kind of redeemed heathens that are, uh, he'll string along, you know, because he's trying to glorify himself. It, you know, it's just a really distant, cold picture um, of a father. And so as I grew up, I realized that there were other ways to translate this verse. And uh, next slide, the, the NASB translates it a different way. It says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, and so I, was, I started to get a little curious about this verse. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I have Google, so I Googled it. Um, and when I, when I Googled it, you can flip to that next slide, uh, I realized that the word for only begotten or one and only uh, is this word monogene. The first part of that word is mono. Uh, we get words like monopoly from it. It means one. And gene is uh, where we get the word for genus, uh, if you've taken biology class, like a genus species. Uh, and so gene means like type or class. And so what that told me is that Jesus was the only son of his kind or class. And that's true, right? 
uh, we don't gain divinity, right? There's a Mormon church up the road, I'm sure, but we don't gain, sorry, we don't gain divinity um, in our theological view of things. Um, we, we aren't God, right? Uh, but I realized that there's a whole plethora of verses uh, that show that God has adopted us as sons and daughters. Um, when I was on this trip in Wyoming, you can flip to the next verse, uh, I came to this verse in uh, Romans 8, right? And it said that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For God has not given us a spirit of fear to fall back into slavery, but he's given us the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That word Abba literally means daddy. Uh, it's a very intimate term for the Father. Um, and what I realize is that uh, Jesus has done something amazing on the cross, right? He has died in our place. He has become the curse um, that we deserved for our sin against the holy and good God. And he has reconciled us to the Father by paying the price that we deserve because the wages of sin are death. I understood that, but this was a whole new dimension for me. Not only in his abundance has God um, given us reconciliation with the Father and made us right with the Father, but he has laid down his life and died in our place so that we could be part of his family, so that he could call us um, sons and daughters. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says in Mere Christianity, the Son of God became a man that men might become sons of God. Um, and this was a whole new revelation um, for me. And the way we access this is through faith in Jesus Christ, right? Through belief in the gospel. Uh, John 1.12, if we flip to the next one, says that to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so how do we become children of God? Right? It's, it's through repentance. It's through uh, repenting of our sin and placing faith in the atoning work that Christ has done on the cross. Um, and I think, right, right, there's a whole bunch of other verses we could look at. We could look at Galatians 4, 1 through 6. We could look at 1 John 3, 1. There's, there's a lot of verses in the New Testament that show this idea that God has adopted us into his family, that he wants something to do with us, that he deeply loves us as sons and daughters. Um, and we hear people say that, you know, everyone's a child of God, but no, this verse says only those who have received him, who have placed faith in him, are given the right to become a child of God, right? It's through what Jesus did. It's, it's not everyone's a child of God. You make two mistakes, right? You either believe that everyone's a child of God or you believe that you are definitely not because of sin. Um, and we're going to talk about this idea. So the question we have to ask is if, if through faith in Christ, we know that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. We have to ask the question, how does God relate to his sons and daughters? Right? And this word sons, we see it a lot in there, but it, it can mean sons and daughters. Uh, in the same way that men are a part of the bride of Christ, women are sons of God. It's confusing, but such are the times. Um, so... <laughs> um, how does God relate to his sons and daughters? Um, let's, let's take a look at that next verse. Uh, Matthew 3.17. This was the verse um, that my guides in the wilderness who loved the Lord a lot showed me. Uh, and this is what changed my life. The context of this verse is the baptism of Jesus. Um, he has asked John the, Bapti John the Baptist to baptize him. Um, and when John does, it says that the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. Uh, and there is a voice from heaven 
the voice of God the Father who says this, right? You are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You, Jesus, are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And in this statement are uh, three things that we desperately, desperately need as, as human beings. Um, we can flip to that next slide. It's a sense of identity, right? Who are we? Uh, a sense of affirmation, right? A sense of validation, um, kind of the, the, the praise and the validation that we crave as people, uh, as well as a sense of affection, love. And so um, Jesus did something radical uh, in, in modeling this for us. He showed us that the place to receive these things, identity, affirmation, and affection, is from the Father, right? Uh, he, he showed us this. And so the other weird thing is when, when was this in Jesus' ministry? It was at the beginning, right? Jesus had not actually done any ministry at this point that we know of. It's recorded in Scripture. I mean, maybe arguing in the temple as a 12-year-old, but... Um, he hadn't done any ministry. He hadn't healed the sick at this point. He hadn't um, driven out demons. He hadn't died on the cross. Yet God said about him, right, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And what that tells me is that Jesus worked from a place of identity, affirmation, and affection instead of for a place of identity, affirmation, and affection. And my fear is that we as the church don't understand this model in full. Uh, and that our efforts to um, be spiritual and holy and be family together are just another way that we try to win God's identity, affirmation, and affection. That we work for those things instead of from those things. And so my question for you is, is simply this. Where do you go in life for these three things? What, what tells you who you are? Uh, where do you go for affirmation or validation? Where do you go for love? Um, I think if we're honest, right, we usually have some, some gifts that God has given us, something we're good at, um, whether it's sports, music, um, being good at math, having a, having a business, whatever it is, there's some avenue that we have of validation, and uh, it becomes our identity over time, right? We know we can make people happy if we do this thing and perform at it really, really well, and so that becomes the uh, the identity that we win over time, and it becomes a source of love. It becomes how we know we're loved. But the danger of that is as soon as we fail to perform at it, our sense of identity is threatened, and our sense of love is threatened. Um, and what I want to suggest is that this method of life is antithetical to the gospel. It is uh, not what, what the gospel promotes at all, that we're actually supposed to work uh, from a place of identity, affirmation, and affection instead of for that place. And so, how did Jesus model this for us? Um, well, right, you can say, okay, Michael, Jesus was perfect, like he never sinned, he followed all the commandments, he did everything right. And you're absolutely right in that. Um, but the reality is, if you've placed faith in Jesus, you're covered by his blood, right? To the point where, if you believe in Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees the radiance of his son, Jesus. Doesn't mean you're divine, right? Uh, but what it means is you've been reconciled to God, that it is finished, right? Your sins have been paid for by Christ and Christ crucified. To the point where when God looks at you, he says, you are my beloved son or daughter with whom I'm well pleased. Do you believe me? All right? 
Is there a little wall that goes up where you're like, ah, he can't be pleased with me, right? Maybe I didn't, you know, I didn't perform well enough this week or I screwed this up or botched this up even this morning, right? Um, what I want to suggest is that little wall that goes up is the narrative that we have to confront. Um, and it's ultimately a disbelief in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, right? It's, it's very uh, subtle and very demonic and it promotes a religious spirit where we are trying to prove ourselves constantly. Uh, and we'll talk about what that looks like. But what I want to say is that you are God's beloved son or daughter with whom he's well pleased if you've placed faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus to forgive your sin, right? Um, and Jesus showed us the model of where we get this, right? We go to the Father to receive these things. And we don't do this, I don't think we do this at the end of the day. I mean, I don't want to be legalistic about your prayer life, but uh, I think we do this before we do the work, right? Before we go do ministry, that God doesn't say, I'm proud of you because uh, you did all this stuff, where he says, I love you and I'm proud of you because of what Jesus did. And now from that place, you can live out your identity as a son or daughter in God. Um, so Jesus models uh, where to go to get these things for us, and it's from the Father. And uh, the role of a father is, is really crucial and important. Um, we can toss that next slide up there. Uh, but the role of a father is, is really to do three things. It's to protect us. I mean, there's way more than three, let's be honest. But it's to protect us, to provide for us, uh, and to give us a sense of identity. We receive our last names from our fathers often, right? Um, we, we are supposed to feel safe, protected, provided for in our fathers. We are supposed to go to our father to receive uh, a sense of who we are. And the reality is our earthly fathers have probably goofed this up on one or more dimensions, right? Um, and this colors our picture of the heavenly father, sadly, right? And... Um, what happens is if our earthly fathers have failed us in one or more of these departments, we distrust, we often, not always, but we can often distrust God to come through on one of these departments. We say, ah, I don't know if he's gonna protect me, I don't know if he's gonna provide for me, I don't know if he is going to uh, give me the identity, right? But God, in his abundance, is so willing to pour this out, right? He who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How much more will he give the spirit of sonship and daughtership to those who ask? Um, but a lot of times, we don't trust him in this department. There's parts of our heart that say, I don't, at the end of the day, uh, I don't really trust that he is going to provide those things. And so, um, I think in the, in the Israelite exodus, right, you have all of the people of Israel get out of slavery, Right, they're all free from Pharaoh, they cross through the Red Sea. Uh, but not all of them go to the promised land. And I think in a similar way, like all Christians are forgiven of sin, they are um, placed in right standing with God. But I think there is a promised land of, of walking in step with the Father, of knowing the Father's love for us, of being content in the Father's love that I just don't think every Christian obtains. And it's not because someone's super spiritual, um, but I think it's because we take these things into our own hands, all right? I've done this so many times in my life, I, I, I couldn't count it, um, but I think what happens is we distrust the Father to protect, provide, and give identity, uh, and what we do instead is we say, I am going to take this quest into my own hands, 
I'm going to protect myself uh, because I don't see God protecting me, uh, or I'm going to provide for myself because I don't see God providing for me, or I'm gonna give myself a name. I'm gonna make myself a name. Um, and I think sometimes we do this because we don't trust God to do it, or sometimes we do it because we don't like how God is doing it. I don't like the identity that you're giving me, right? Um, I want to be something more than that. Or I, I don't like the provision you're giving me. I feel like I'm entitled to more than that. Uh, or you're not protecting me enough, right? People are still hurting me or whatever. When it's like, no, you're, you're called to be in family. It's messy, right? Um, and so I think what we do is we take the quest for these things into our own hands. Um, and at this point, uh, we start to partner with a narrative that is counter to the narrative of God's fatherhood. Um, and I call this the orphan narrative. We can toss that slide up there. When Jesus was uh, departing in the Last Supper, he told his disciples that even though he was leaving, he was not going to leave them as orphans, that he was going to give them his Holy Spirit. Um, and we saw in Romans 8 that that spirit is the spirit of God's fatherhood. Right? It's the spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's the spirit that adopts us as uh, sons and daughters. And so the heart of Jesus is not that we partner with the orphan narrative. Um, but we often do. Um, we often say, I don't see you protecting me, providing for me enough, giving me the identity I deserve. Um, I don't feel like you're giving me identity, affirmation, and affection. So I'm going to take those things into my own hands. Um, you can hit the next slide there. And so the orphan spirit does this, or the orphan narrative does this, by suggesting there are three things that we need to do, which is to prove, produce, and perform. The arc of the narrative goes something like this. You have been spiritually or physically abandoned. You are on your own. You now must prove, produce, and perform. You must fight hard based on the giftings and specialness that's inside of you. If you fight hard enough, and if you protect yourself, if you provide for yourself, you can give yourself an identity. You can win the affirmation of people, which will make you win the love of people, and ultimately make you an object of worship. This is what I call the orphan narrative. It's very, very dangerous, uh, and I'm scared that even we as the church fall into it. I've fallen into it myself many times. Um, and so, the orphan doesn't understand that God, either the orphan doesn't understand or the orphan has rejected the abundance of God's fatherhood. It says, no, I, I don't want you to prove, or I don't want you to provide, protect, and give me identity. I'm gonna do those things for myself. You're not doing it enough or you're not doing it in the way I want to. So I am going to prove, produce, and perform. And um, this is dangerous. It's a terrifying narrative and I find myself falling into it all the time. It is so subtle that as I stand on this stage before you, telling you how dangerous it is, if I'm not careful, I can be actively proving, producing, and performing right now as I'm giving you this talk, right? Isn't that crazy? Um, and so we find, ourselves, we find ourselves up against this constantly. And um, the narrative is all around us, and it's, it's totally the opposite of the gospel, right? The gospel says a loving father saw that you were spiritually orphaned because of sin. Right? And he came and sent his own son to die on your behalf. And, and in that sacrifice, he adopted you as a son or daughter to the point where you don't have to prove, produce, and perform anymore. Why? Because Jesus was perfect. He proved, produced, and performed perfectly. 
And he did it without, you know, being in wrong relationship with the Father, which we definitely can't do. Um, but the narrative comes at us all the time. It comes at us in our workplaces, comes at us at home. Um, and we are tempted to try to do these things, to win the love and validation, instead of believing what Jesus said on the cross, which is, it is finished. That the work has been done, that there's nothing left for us to prove, produce, and perform. Uh, and so God revealed these things to me seven years ago in the wilderness through some great teachers, but uh, he's been deepening all of this over the last seven years. It's not like I got that revelation. I was like, boom, perfect. I don't fall into this anymore. Um, it's like a month by month, week by week, sometimes day by day battle uh, to not partner with his orphan spirit. And I got so mad one day uh, a couple years ago. I was like, God, why do I keep falling into this? Why is it so, you know, why is it so prevalent on my heart? Where does this come from that it's constantly reinforced in me? And he said something really clear. He said, turn on your TV. I was like, what? <laughs> he said, turn on your television. Um, so I did. And uh, you can flip to the next slide. What I started to realize is that almost all of the protagonists in uh, the movies and films uh, and things that we've experienced over the last 20 years are orphaned protagonists, right? They feature orphan characters who um, do not have a father, who do not have protection, provision, and identity, who have to use their specialness and their gifting to prove, produce, and perform, to protect themselves, to provide for themselves, and ultimately win an identity, uh, a deep love, and a place of validation and worship of the people around them. And I was like, I, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills as I watch this, right? Because I, I can't even turn on the TV anymore. Because it's like uh, Harry Potter, Katniss Everdeen, every Disney princess except Mulan, right? Um, <laughs> I'm serious, like turn on, it's crazy, right? Um, and she kind of partners with it too, right? She rejects her family, right? And does what she wants. Um, we could look at all the superheroes, right? Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, Iron Man, right? Uh, all the Star Wars people. Right? Interestingly, Marvel and Star Wars were both recently obtained by the Walt Disney Company. Probably no correlation there. Um, but, right, like all of these characters, and Disney doesn't have the market on this, right? This is like all of the media um, to the point where I, I, when someone tells me you should watch this or, or watch movies, I don't really watch a lot of movies, but when someone tells me you should watch a show or a movie, I put a clock on it. And I'm like, how long till the protagonist is an orphan? Right? Someone's like, hey, you should check out The Queen's Gambit. It's like the number one show on Netflix. I was like, oh, everybody likes it? Mm, okay. I give it five minutes. It's like three minutes in, car crash, orphan. It's like, and now she has to, she goes to the orphanage and has to prove, produce, and perform to win. I'm like, ah, I can't do this anymore. Right? This is crazy. Um, it's everywhere. Right? This media is everywhere. And what it's constantly doing is it's reinforcing the narrative of spiritual abandonment to you. Right? It's reinforcing this narrative that you are on your own to prove, produce, and perform to win identity, affirmation, and affection, right? And it's antithetical to the gospel, right? I think the only Disney movie that doesn't, like, fall into this arc or narrative is 101 Dalmatians, right? Because you have the two parent dogs who, like, fight on behalf of their kids, and they, like, adopt all the orphans at the end of the movie, too. And I was like, yes, <laughs> this is great, right? You know what Walt Disney said about the movie? He hated it. He called it a failure of style when it came out in 1961, right? And Walt Disney had this, his father had, like, was super physically abusive to him. He had this horrible relationship with his dad. And isn't it interesting that uh, the fruit and legacy of his life is the narrative he probably partnered with his whole life? And I don't want that for us in the church. 
right? I want us to understand that this narrative constantly bombards us. Like, I've just opened your eyes to this, and when you turn on your media and television and movies, you're not going to be able to unsee it. I'm sorry, I just ruined, like, all of Netflix for you. It's fine, go preach the gospel. Um, but, but you don't have to prove anything. Um, but this is the point, is, like, this narrative is everywhere in our culture. It doesn't mean media is evil, right? Media is a neutral thing that God can use for his glory. But because uh, the Lord, like, because the people there don't love the Lord, that's the only narrative they can come to, right? It's this orphan spirit or this orphan narrative um, by which we understand we have to prove, produce, and perform. Um, it's everywhere in our culture. It is actively trying to get us to partner with it. Um, and we have to reject it, right? Even though all of our media, every screen that we turn on is telling us a certain story, right? We have to look to the word of God. Right? We have to look to the Word of God and realize that there is nothing for me to prove, produce, and perform. Right? And that is so freeing that when God looks at me, he already says, because of what Jesus did, you are my beloved son or daughter with whom I'm well pleased. Right? And if we understand this revelation of who the Father is, that there's nothing for us to prove, produce, and perform, right? that's what's going to put us in right relationship with the Father. It's really just belief in the gospel. It's really just belief in the sufficiency of what Jesus did on the cross, um, but, but how it carries over into how we relate to God as a father. And so I started to think, like, where does this narrative come from? That it's everywhere in culture, that it's, it's totally ubiquitous. And I was like, well, I mean, I guess I could say it comes from sin, right? That we kind of have this void of fatherhood in our heart, um, and the Holy Spirit fills that, and we get the spirit of fatherhood who cries out, Abba, Father. Uh, but I started to think about it even deeper, and I was like, well, where did the idea to sin come from? Right? And uh, if we look back at the story of Eden, it came from the serpent, uh, the being that we call Satan or Satan. Um, put this idea in Adam and Eve that they should sin against the holy and good God. And I started to think about his narrative uh, a little more, and uh, what I realized is that Jesus is heaven's righteous son, right? Uh, but Satan was this angelic being. Right? Um, he was some kind of angel, some kind of whatever it is, guardian, cherub, whatever you want to call him. He's this angel. And uh, in, in Hebrews 1, it says that angels have no inheritance. They're inferior to the sun. Um, and that this angel was kicked out of heaven because of his pride. Right? And so uh, we have an angelic being who's kicked out of heaven because of his pride and has no inheritance. And I started to realize that if, if Jesus is heaven's son, Satan is heaven's orphan. Right? And that in all of the confusing things I see about American culture and media, what if there are just two forces on earth? What if there's just heaven's son and heaven's orphan both trying to replicate their image across culture? What if it's that simple? Um, and it kind of freaked me out a little bit. Um, but because, like, the American media is, is, you know, not given to the lordship of Jesus, it's going to reflect the narrative of heaven's orphan. Right? Both of those forces want to replicate their image. And we know who's going to win that war. Right? The Lord is. He's going he's to bring many sons to glory. Um, but because we're in the thick of the battlefield, we are, are caught in the crossfire of those two narratives, sometimes in the same day. Right? Um, and I think what God is calling us to do is to repent of the ways that we have taken provision, protection, and identity giving into our own hands. 
I think what God is calling us to do, to know him as a father, is to stop the proving, producing, and performing. It's to stop receiving our identity from how well we can do those three things. Because that's antithetical to the gospel. The gospel says Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient enough. And it's interesting because I have this theory that Satan knows how pivotal this is. Right? He knows that if he can twist your identity, he can twist the rest of you. I mean, look at how he tempts Jesus on the cross. If you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. If you're the son of God, throw yourself from this temple, for he will command his angels concerning you. Two of those three temptations start with the clause, if you're the son of God. Uh, and what that tells me is that Satan knows if he can get Jesus to have a wrong perception about his identity, then he can bring him down. And you see what he's doing here? Those temptations are framed in a way of spiritual performance. Right? If you're the son of God, spiritually perform in this way. If you're the son of God, do this. Uh, and honestly, I think that temptation has crept on us as people in the body of Christ. If you're the son of God, go a day without sinning. If you're a son or daughter, you should do these things. If you're a son or daughter, your marriage should be healthy. Or if you're a son or daughter, you should never yell at your kids. Or whatever it is, right? We hear this narrative in our head. Uh, but what I love is that Jesus has no time for this, right? He rejects it. He says, no way, right? And he, he falls back on the word of God. And what I think God is calling us to do, to know him as father, is to do the same. Is to reject the ways that Satan tempts us to prove, produce, and perform. Uh, and to instead um, go to him as Jesus did. To go to the Father and say, will you tell me who I am? Will you tell me that you're pleased with me? Will you tell me that you love me? Will you give me that identity affirmation and affection? And say that's enough, that's sufficient. Even if I see it in the word and I don't feel this emotional overflow. To look at that and say, yes, God, it's there in the word. I believe it. I believe in your sufficiency. I repent for proving, producing, and performing to win an identity for myself. Right? I, I seriously believe that until we do this as individuals, we're not going to be able to love each other as family. Because how can you recognize the Spirit of God in another? Right? How can you look at another person's brokenness in the body and not see that brokenness, but see the potential God has for shaping that brokenness into beauty? Unless you have a Father's heart unless you see that your own efforts to try and prove, produce, and perform are never gonna work, so why would someone else's, right? I seriously don't believe that we are going to be family with one another until we are right with the Father as individuals. Um, and, and this is what Jesus says it's all about at the end of the day. You can jump to the next slide there, right? Uh, Jesus says in Matthew, um, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only him who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name uh, and do many mighty works in your name? And he declares, and, and I will declare to them on that day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right? It's interesting. The people come to him and they appeal to him on what basis? Works. works. They appeal to him on their performance. Right? Look, they're spiritually performing. Right? Now we can enter the kingdom, right? And God's like, I didn't know you. Right? You didn't come to me to get your identity affirmation and affection. You didn't let me tell me, tell you who you were. 
And you didn't pour out praise to me. You didn't say, God, I'm gonna talk about your identity. I'm gonna affirm you as God because you're amazing. I'm gonna pour my love out on you as God, right? There's this exchange of identity, affirmation, and affection between these two parties. That's what it means to know God, right? To know how we relate to him. Um, and Jesus shows this, right? He's, it's not about spiritual performance. Uh, you can flip to that next slide as well. The reality is that unless we abide in him, we are not going to produce anything of substance. That our best works are, uh, right, they're filthy rags, right? That's the gospel, is we can't prove, produce, and perform enough, right? We can't provide for ourselves, protect ourselves, give ourselves identity. We can't win the identity, affirmation, and affection that we so desperately crave in ways that are sustainable and healthy for eternal life. But in the abundance of his love, God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for our sin. Not only to reconcile us to the Father, uh, but to fill us with the spirit of sonship, to affirm us every day. And so my challenge to you, Moran Park, um, is to pray. And to pray and ask God, God, would you father me today? My best days are the days I wake up and do this. And ask God, would you father me today? Would you fill me with identity, affirmation, and affection? I repent for the ways that I've tried to prove, produce, and perform. I repent for the ways that I have taken uh, the quest to provide, protect, and give myself an identity into my own hands instead of rejoicing in the ways that Jesus has done that for me. I repent for saying that those ways are insufficient as if the cross is insufficient. Um, and I truly believe, Moran Park, that when we do this, when we start to know the Father as individuals, when we reject the orphan spirit and the orphan narrative, we are going to get God's heart for one another, and we're going to understand what it means to be family. So, yeah. Um, just one more slide up there. It's, it's this. is um, You are God's beloved son and daughter with whom he's well pleased. And whatever is coming into your life today and challenging that narrative, give it to the Lord, right? Tell him that the cross was sufficient, that he won the battle. There's nothing left for you to prove, produce, and perform. You've been covered by the blood of Jesus so that when Jesus looks at you, if you place faith in him, you are his beloved son and daughter with whom he's well pleased. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your sufficiency. God, I thank you that you have done what it takes, that you have proved, produced, and performed on a level that we could not dream of, Jesus. God, I pray that you would teach us how to be family, that you would teach us how to love one another, Lord, that you would teach us what it means to lay down our lives for one another, God. But before we go there, Lord, would you affirm us as a father? We repent for trying to win all of these things on our own, God. We repent for partnering with the narrative that we see all across our culture. You've called us to be set apart and different. And so my prayer, Father, is that you would teach me, you would teach my brothers and sisters in this room, God, um, what it means that it is finished, Lord. What it means that there's nothing left to prove, produce, and perform, God. That you already look at us. That you already love us. You already validate us. And even if the world gives us none of those things, that's enough, Lord. We thank you that that's enough. In Jesus' name, amen.